It was almost time for the Passover festival, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. There in the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and pigeons, and also the money changers sitting at their tables. So he made a whip from cords and drove all the animals out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He overturned the tables of the money changers and scattered their coins. And he ordered those who sold pigeons. Take them out of here! Stop making my father's house a marketplace! His disciples remembered that the scripture says, my devotion to your house, O God, burns in me like a fire. The Jewish authorities came back at him with a question. What miracle can you perform to show us that you have the right to do this? Tear down this temple, and in three days I will build it again. Are you going to build it again in three days? It has taken 46 years to build this temple. But the temple Jesus was speaking about was his body. So when he was raised from death, his disciples remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and what Jesus had said. Good morning, church. Good morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, you have stepped into a series from the Gospel of John that I'm entitling Life Matters. And visually and audibly, you just heard what our text actually is for this day from John chapter 2. But I want to say this right up front. If you're visiting our campus today, this church scene and maybe things like scripture and maybe even Jesus may be new to you. But welcome. And I want to say today, especially right up front, this message isn't for you as much as it is for those of us for whom all of this this morning is old hat. This is church the way we like it. This is church the way we know it. This is what we expect. This is comfortable. This is predictable. And to be honest, this is what we will have or else. And or else is often not so Christian. Just as much as out there it's not so Christian because our or else often really isn't tied to theology as much as it is to meology. And the reality is all churches suffer, all churches suffer from this deadly malady often enough that every now and then God himself has got to show up and give us a good whipping. A good whipping. Because it's his house. It's not made up of four concrete walls or four concrete opinions as much as it's made up of one submissive heart connected to another submissive heart, connected to another submissive heart, all in the name of Jesus for his glory. Now, if we were short on time, and we're not, that would be my quickest application of what we just saw and what we just heard. But we do have a little bit of time, so let's unpack John chapter 2 after we've prayed. Let's bow. Wow, Father, the, the fury, the anger, the chaos that we just witnessed 
it's hard to attach those words to the Jesus most of us read about, hear about, and sing about. It's the Jesus, though, that we are doing our best to try to make Lord of our lives, Lord of this church. And I know it's the same Jesus that uh, the Catholics at Notre Dame are trying to make Lord of their church. We never get it fully right. Sometimes we miss it terribly, terribly wrong. And so together with them, we're asking, would you please help us to have truly eyes to see what it is you want your church to be? And where it's not what you want it to be, help us to please have eyes to see and to make the changes necessary to clean house, if it were, because it really is your house. And everyone who believes in Jesus said, Amen. In the Gospel of John chapter 2, when Jesus comes on the scene, he goes to two places in the chapter. And he makes two things. First, he goes to a wedding. Not the kind of wedding that most of us are used to, the solemn here comes the bride kind of wedding that usually lasts for maybe an hour or two. No, this wedding would last for a week. And it was a festival with eating and drinking and dancing and laughter. Jesus went there and he took his disciples there. And then he went to the temple in Jerusalem. The holiest place on earth at his time. And at that temple, some serious preparation for the Passover was going on. Now, if this is your first time ever to read any gospel, let alone John's gospel, and I said to you, Jesus went two places. He went to a wedding, and then he went to the temple. And at those two places, he made two things, a whip and some wine. Where would you put those two? I have a feeling most of us would guess, well, for sure he put the whip at the wedding, right? He made the whip there. Because of all the dancing and the drinking and the partying, we, we, we need a whip to get that kind of a party under control. And the 150 gallons of wine, if he created that, it would have to be for communion, right? But if you've been reading John at all, you know for a fact it goes the other way. In Cana at the wedding, he makes 150 gallons of wine. And he doesn't just make wine, he makes the good stuff. So good that they can't believe that it's served at the end of the wedding when most people bring out the Boone's Farm. Instead, no, he brings out the Kindle Jack. How did you know what Boone's Farm was? <laughs> Instead, he brings out the Kindle Jackson Vintner Reserve, and you're thinking, how do you know that? <laughs> Jesus is right in the middle of all of that. Please hear me. He's right in the middle of all of that. Celebrating with disciples, making it clear if we're going to go, we're going to go big when we're celebrating, especially new beginnings. Telling stories, laughing, giving God thanks. Let's go bigger, let's go home. I want to believe that the Lord was in the midst of all of that, not standing off on the sidelines with his arms crossed, only to unfold them whenever he was counting the number of glasses someone had or, or who had had too much and writing their names down. We're not told what the dance was that they were enjoying, but there's a good chance it probably looked a lot like Tevia on Filler on the Roof. Some good Jewish dance. Personally, I'd like to think that if it was the big dance at the time, the Lord would have been doing the Cupid Shuffle right along with everybody else. Love that. Or maybe the chicken dance. Then he goes to Jerusalem. 
to the temple and all heaven breaks loose as you saw a few moments ago. You may have noticed it's out of chronological order in John's gospel. We'll talk about that in a minute. But John, with the leading of the Holy Spirit, chooses to put two stories back to back with each other because this Jesus is anything but a dabbler when it comes to life. No, he's full on. Full on life. And so he celebrates a wedding making 150 gallons of wine and he makes a whip when he goes to the temple to do some house cleaning because this Jesus is extreme. Never subtle. Rarely subtle. Well, it's time for the Academy Awards. And in light of that being announced this week, there's a category that's not going to get much airtime, I can promise you. Best original score. Movie scores are written by some of the people that are behind the scenes. I love those people behind the scenes. We need those people behind the scenes. But rarely do they make it to the red carpet. No, they're the gifted people who are writing background music that sits underneath what we're watching on the big screen. The music's incredibly important, though. And it has to match what's happening in the movie. When Darth Vader walks out to meet Luke, you don't want to hear, don't worry, be happy. That wouldn't fit, would it? When Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan meet on top of the Empire State Building, you don't want to hear the theme from Jaws, do you? That wouldn't work. It's interesting in the Gospel of John, Chapter, the first part of chapter 2 starts out with this playful Jewish dance music because it's a wedding, but then it begins to change. It begins to build and becomes a little bit more dramatic, maybe a little bit of a minor chord when you get to the last half. Because this is not softly and tenderly Jesus' calling that we see on the screen or we saw a few moments ago. No, this is category 5, Hurricane Jesus. Behold, he comes. Probably would fit a little bit better. This is large and in charge, Jesus. This is ballistic, Jesus. And in John's gospel, it has a little bit more of a unique flavor than in the other gospels. In the other gospels, there's just doves that are mentioned. Here we've got cattle. We've got sheep. We got a, there's more than dove hunting going on here. It looks more like a 4-H barn at fair time. And it's, it's, it's chaos. And all of a sudden, Jesus makes a whip. He makes a whip, starts to form it and fashion it, and then he starts to use the whip. Kind of stuns you when you see what was on the screen, doesn't it? Coins rolling, tables turning over, chaos, all in God's house. The other difference I mentioned a few moments ago is that in the other Gospels you find out this happened in the last days of Jesus' life. It probably did. This is probably chronologically true, and basically it's the last straw for the Jewish leaders in Jesus' life because they'd been wanting him dead for a long, long time. Threatened to destroy our holy place, will you? Well, we'll destroy you, buddy. Now, this is strictly my opinion, but I think the temple was, wasn't cleansed twice, as some think. I think John takes this story, and by design, he juxtaposes it with this other story from the wedding. Because he's telling this story of this Jesus that most of us could never write on our own. It's a cut and paste job. Jesus at a wedding with some wine and Jesus at the temple with a whip. And it's all out, full on Jesus. And, and that's who John wants us to see. Buckle your seatbelt, Jesus. That's who we've been called to follow. But he goes to Jerusalem at the temple. Which... To many of the Jews, it was like the best rabbit's foot possible. 
best totem pole possible. Many Jews believed the temple would protect them as long as it was standing. With it this day, they knew this nation could not be swallowed up completely, no way, no how. It was kind of like the kids playing hide-and-seek and saying, this is, this is base. This is base. I can't be hurt here. You can't get me here. No ill could happen because the temple was here. And this temple was immense. There's no way in the world I could get a photograph. I looked for them all week long to do it justice as far as getting some kind of an eye view of it. What you're looking at is, is as best as what historians could put to scale how large a temple was in comparison to the rest of Jerusalem. As you approached the city, it would have been the absolute focus of your attention. I'm telling you, it was awe-striking. It wasn't a, a temple, and then there was a city. It was the temple, and uh, there was a city. It was huge. And John tells us whenever Jesus walks to the temple, it's Passover time, which for them would kind of feel for us like the 4th of July. For them, it was freedom from Egypt. For us, it was freedom from Britain. But it was celebrating freedom. It was celebrating deliverance. And Jerusalem was about Kerrville's side, 25, 35,000 people. But it would swell to 150,000 people in this week. Every hotel room would be taken. Every one of your favorite restaurants would have two-hour waits. Crowds everywhere. And for many of them, especially the younger ones, it was mind-boggling to finally go to that place mom and dad and grandma and grandpa have been talking about forever. Many of you remember your first time when you saw the Grand Canyon or Lincoln's Memorial or Niagara Falls. You had heard about it, but now you'd seen it for yourself, and, and it was a part of you. It changed you. That was the temple. It's forever tied to the Jewish people's story of freedom, to their pride, and so much more. It was overwhelming. It was 150,000 people like bees on a swarm. And it was more than just what you saw. It's the history behind it. There was the first temple, Solomon's Temple, completed in 1957 B.C. It was amazing. It was a sight to behold then, but it's destroyed almost 400 years later by the Babylonians. Fast forward 520 B.C., to what many call the reconstructed or the second temple. It was built by Zerubbabel. Now, in case I lose you during this histor historical part of it, say Zerubbabel with me. Here we go. Zerubbabel. One more time. Zerubbabel. You can go home and tell everybody you spoke Hebrew today. Fun Hebrew. He begins the extreme makeover of the temple after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians, and he does it well. But then along, in about 63 B.C., the Romans come and they... They don't just desecrate it, they begin to, to rip it to shreds, led by General Pompey. But then in 19 B.C., Herod the Great, this is the temple we're most familiar with because of, of the writings of Jesus and the Gospels that go with it. During 19 B.C., to gain favor with the Jews, Herod decides he's going to restore their temple. It took 46 years, at least by the time that we have Jesus come on the scene, to do it so far. And there's scaffolding and there's cleaning and stuff going on. And they'll get it repaired completely by 64 A.D., 30 years after Jesus' death and crucifixion, and then six years later, completely destroyed forever. In John 2, the temple is well underway of being restored for the second time. And for those who are entrepreneurs, like some of you are entrepreneurs, I mean, you've got a knack for making money. It doesn't matter what the economy is doing. You know how to find a niche, and you know how to turn even bad times into good money. Well, they were doing that, I promise you, with the temple of all places. I mean, you've got 75,000 pilgrims coming to your city, and they don't all want to bring animals with them. It's too far to travel with an animal. 
Why bring your sheep when you could buy one there? And so they've got all these little kiosks set up in the outer court where the Gentiles are, are supposed to be anyway. If you're wealthy, you can buy a sheep or a cow. If you're poor, you're allowed to buy a dove. And so you've got all these entrepreneurs, and they're setting up these sacrifices, not as a favor, but to make a small fortune. And if the markup seemed a little bit unfair, you show up with your money to pay for those sacrifices, and there's a good chance you've got dirty money in your pockets. If you came from very far away, your currency is likely to have a foreign emperor on it or some god or goddess other than the one true god. And so you're not bringing that in the temple. No way. And so you did then what we do now in a foreign country. We exchange it. Maybe before you leave the airport, even though the exchange rate is incredibly just terrible, you need a little money for the cab, you need a little bit of money for the dinner, and so you trade your money for temple money. And you do so at a sorry exchange rate. And Jesus looks at all of this, all of this, and he is not happy about what he sees. And all of a sudden, the are you kidding me begins to, to grow inside him to the get out of my way me, ballistic me. Why? What puts a burn in his saddle? to that extreme. Well, in Mark's gospel, two passages are quoted that aren't quoted here in John. There's an Isaiah passage that's quoted, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. One of the reasons Jesus gets his dandruff up is because God's house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all people. But the Jews had made that near impossible. You see, the temple had some designated places for the Jewish men and for Jewish women, and the outer part was designated for the Gentiles. And that's where they had set up all their kiosks. That's why they were selling everything. That's why they were exchanging money. It was absolutely nuts. And no Gentile could ever get there because it was so overcrowded with business. They had them squeezed out. Privilege is the idea that if it's not a problem for me, it's not a problem. And Jesus calls the Jewish people on that because it's a problem. Pointing out that even though it's not a problem for you Jewish-born folk, your kiosk and your ATM machines and your two-for-one deals is a problem for the Gentiles. They can't pray when they come to my house of worship. And he gets a little upset. The other passage that Mark mentions comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. You've made my house a den of robbers. That's what you've done. What's going on with the animals being sold looks a whole lot more like gouging the customers instead of assisting the customer. There's something stinky about those exchange rates too. And instead of being taken into the presence of God, they're being taken to the cleaners is what's going on. And Jesus gets fed up with it. Jesus absolutely goes ballistic. And John, the narrator, slips in right here after that comment. That he's fulfilling scripture in all this. Psalms chapter 69. Zeal for your house will consume me, is what the scripture actually says there. When was the last time you saw some zeal around your house? From mom, from dad, or grandma, or grandpa? Or Ann or Uncle Sally. Uncle Sally, how about Aunt Sally, Uncle John? <laughs> when was the last time you saw a little zeal at your house, huh? We don't call that zeal at my house. We call that ballistic. That probably translates a little bit better. When was the last time you saw... What was it for? Let me ask that question now. Because your kids were disrespecting you? Mud on the carpet? 
engine wouldn't start again. Someone cut you off in traffic again. Someone forgot your birthday again. He made you late again. She made you late again. Contrast any of that for what Jesus goes ballistic over. And it may make you a little bit more humble, just like it did me. Jesus sees his father's temple being treated as a marketplace, not a holy place. It's supposed to be a place of transformation and a place where the focus is on God, but they've turned it into a place of transaction and the focus is on self. And Jesus says, unacceptable. Unacceptable. Which is probably worth remembering because that is always a temptation for any of us who are religious. We turn religious stuff into something that interests me, as Raymond pointed out earlier, instead of interesting God. That's our natural bent in the flesh. Rather than seeking what honors Him and what celebrates Him and what pleases Him, we can so easily make it about my feeling welcome, my taste of music, my programs, my comfort, my agenda. And if you had to put music to all that, it would be something like this. Let me have two old songs, one short sermon, no crying babies, and a safe place to park my new car. Sing with me. Here we go. And the Lord said, not on my watch. Your agendas take a back seat to God's every time. And although you may think your agendas are God's, please be humble enough to think about that often enough to realize often they're not. Right after Hurricane Jesus hits the shores of the temple in verse 18, we see there's more to this temple cleansing than just setting it free from profiteers of all kinds and personal agendas of all kinds. While Jesus revered this place of God, don't ever doubt that I mean that or understand that. He makes the point, the temple's not the goal. In fact, pause for a little bit of a series review here. Here we go. Lesson number one, so far we've seen that knowing the Bible's not the goal. The scripture points to Jesus. He's the goal. The Bible's the means to the goal. He's the goal, though. Lesson two, John the Baptist is not the goal. No superstar in Christianity, writer, preacher, singer, none of us are the goal. No, Jesus is the goal. That sign of turning water into wine, that's just a sign. It points somewhere. Don't make much of the wine. Make much, though, of the winemaker. And now in the most dramatic fashion possible, we find out that the extraordinary temple is not the point. No, a relationship with the extraordinary God is the point. And he's standing right in front of you. In the flesh, you can know him, you can touch him, you can love him, and you can crucify him. Is what Jesus is saying here in this moment after the temple's been cleansed. And the religious leaders say, Rabbi, we're going to have to see some ID for this. We need to know why in the world you think you've got the right to come in here and do what you've done here today. And Jesus says, here's your sign. Destroy this temple and I will restore it in three days. And the leaders respond, are you kidding? It took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to rebuild it in three days? And Jesus walked away. But John the narrator adds the temple he had spoken of was his body and after he was raised from the dead his disciples recalled what he had said and then they believed the scripture and the words he had spoken interesting 
for the second time in our text, the disciples remember. That's what Coley said when he walked up here a few moments ago. Remember with me, would you? Kind of had our attention. What are we going to remember? So much of the Gospels is just that remembering. It's looking back. It seems that once the Lord had been raised from the dead, everybody had to go back and reread Scripture again and rethink everything that they knew as a Jew. You know, some movies are like that. That's how the sixth sense is. If you've never seen the sixth sense, spoiler alert, all right? I'm going to ruin the movie for you now. That's all right. It was made in 1999. If you haven't seen it now, you probably aren't going to see it. At the end of the movie, you find out the kid sees dead people alive. And somebody's thinking, oh, I was going to watch it this afternoon, and you just blew it for me. Well, watch The Prestige anyway, a lot less gory and a great surprise ending. But the first time you see the sixth sense, you're wondering, where in the world is all this going? And in the very last scene, you see the key to the movie. And then you almost need to go back and rewatch the entire movie to make sense out of it. That's what Jesus' resurrection did. When Jesus walks out of the tomb, listen to me, church, the disciples saw a dead person alive. It kind of makes you rethink things, especially when he's your rabbi, your Lord, your master, the one who you thought was the Messiah. Just like he predicted he walked out of there, just like he predicted he was crucified, just like he predicted he was raised from the dead, and it caused them to rethink everything they knew about Scripture and God because he changes everything. All of the passages they knew and loved were now seen in a different light. Psalm 69, like we read a few moments ago, Jeremiah 7, Isaiah 53, all of them now, they had context sin, but now, wow, this is what they were pointing to? Yes. Later, when Jesus is resurrected, they have an aha moment and say, this is what Jesus meant when he was talking to the leaders that day at the temple after he had whipped them into a frenzy. Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, he said. I remember. And he wasn't talking about walls and brick and mortar. He was talking about him. He's the temple. He's the place where heaven and earth touch. He's the only temple that matters. Raised from the dead forever. Never to be destroyed. And this changes everything. Now those of us in the church know that Paul takes this, this metaphor of temple. And he applies it not just to Jesus' physical body. But listen to me. To us. Go ahead and put the scripture up next, guys. To us. Don't you know that, and really in the Greek, that's y'all. Don't you know that y'all are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you, in your midst? I think that changes something. Or ought to. Jesus hopes it will. Because he's the, he's the way. He's the truth. He's the life, and there's only the way and the truth and the life as much as he's in us. So that's why he sends his spirit. So I don't need a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I don't need a building to go to. I don't need a holy place. I just need a holy person. And Jesus has made that possible through him. And I have, by God's grace, through him, free access to Almighty God. Heaven and earth meet in Christ. Thank you, Jesus. And every now and then, he's got to whip some stuff up in his church. 
Every now and then, every church who's convinced they're operating in Jesus' name and for his glory needs, can I say it, a good whipping? A good, a good whipping. And only he gives those well and reminds us well of what God's temple agenda is. Let me close by asking just a couple of questions and the message is yours. What's your temple agenda? What would he turn over in your life? What motives of yours would he question? What have you decided will be the norm for God's church regardless of who it denies access to? What's being done in his name that really ought to have your name on it because that's really what it's about? Can I tell you as someone who receives a living from his church, I have to ask myself that question almost every week. And this week, Jesus is asking it of all of us. Is what gets you bent out of shape when it's threatened or changed because of theology or meology? For those of you who've been on the outside looking in, as many of the Gentiles were when Jesus decided to whip things up, for those of you who don't see room for you here because there's so much of us here, can I tell you, we're working on that. We really are. Because we're trying to get to a place where we, on a regular basis, invite Jesus to come in and clean house if he needs to. We're trying to ask some questions, and they're not easy to ask because they're certainly not easy to, to then put into action. What do you want in your house? Father, we truly do want to invite people into a relationship with you. A personal relationship not a relationship with four walls. But we come this morning confessing that we don't take spiritual inventory of ourselves very well. So we're welcoming you, the Holy Spirit, and specific members of our family that we can trust to see what sometimes we have blind spots and can't see. Please, turn over our agendas where need be. Clean out the self-centeredness and pride among us, beginning with the preacher. Help us to make room for your complete will to be done in us because we want a God-made temple over any man-made temple. In the name of Jesus, we pray this and everyone said. Nobody fills my heart like Jesus. We're going to sing that song. And if that's not been true of you, we're going to have some elders up the front and the back. If there's been some other things threatening you, pushing you, burdening you we want to help replace that with Jesus Christ this morning if you want to put him on in baptism please come find me let's stay in church and let's say